Welcome to the Beyond the Books podcast, where we're talking with the experts solving the world's biggest problems. My name is Jonah Leinwand. And my name is Aryan Singh, and we'd like to welcome you back to our podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Maggie Zinopoulos, who we are thrilled to have as our guest today. Dr. Zinopoulos is a professor at Trent University in the Faculty of Science and a motivated researcher in the fields of environmental science and biology. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Zinopoulos. The research that people in the field of environmental science have been doing is extremely important. And we are now at the point where our actions as human beings are making direct contributions to the environment in many negative ways. So we really appreciate your positive contributions to the field. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your primary research focuses? Sure. So, as you mentioned, I am a professor uh, in the Department of Biology at Trent University, and I am a limnologist uh, and an ecosystem ecologist. So what is limnology, you ask? Limnology is the study of inland waters. So in essence, uh, the study of lakes and, and rivers and ponds and wetlands. So anything that's inland. And um, I also am an ecosystem ecology, so ecologist. So I try to uh, to link uh, the environment with um, so both the biological and abiotic component of the environment together, um, taking a more broad ecosystem approach. What I do. At, uh, at Trent University. I'm very much interested in the effects of human activities uh, on the way that the lakes and the rivers are, the way that they function, their structure. So what do they look like? What does their biology look like? Uh, what does their function look like? So they perform a lot of different functions and, and how do humans affect that? Uh, what I do in particularly, uh, particular, so this is the, my research that's funded through, uh, through NSERC, so the, the Canadian Federal Agency, is I examine the effects of uh, land use on uh, dissolved organic matter in streams. Now, what is this dissolved organic matter? This is, this is carbon. Um, and of course, carbon is the backbone of life because it can readily bond with other elements to form long chains and more complex micromolecules. All of these things are made of carbon, are carbon-based, because carbon plays such a prominent role in the chemistry of living things. And so this dissolved organic matter is, um, is, is made out of carbon. So through photosynthesis, the way to think about it, so through photo photosynthesis, um, plants will convert solar energy or sunlight into chemical energy. And then they'll use that to build carbohydrate and molecules and biomass. And then this biomass kind of dies and this carbon, this organic carbon, can transfer laterally into aquatic ecosystems. So it can transfer into lakes, it can transfer into rivers. And whatever passes through the filter is the dissolved organic matter that I'm really interested in studying. And this, this dissolved organic matter, this DOM, um, is really important 
And fresh waters are hot spots for organic matter cycling um, and plays a key role in, uh, in global carbon fluxes. And so I'm just kind of really interested in this DOM. And, in, and once it goes into our water, now, so when it comes from the catchments, when it comes from outside, when it's transferred from the biomass of trees that has died, we call it a lockedness for coming from the outside, but it can also be produced internally uh, through, you know, phytoplankton photosynthesis. So these are the microscopic algae that are in the water and through other microbial activities. And so this is the autochthonous carbon. And each of these different DOM uh, have very different chemical properties and play very different roles in important roles, both of them, but very different roles um, in aquatic ecosystems and in the carbon cycle. But primarily what the DOM is, it's, it's substrate for the microbes and the microbes use it to respire and for their metabolic activity. And then this transfers, so they degrade this organic carbon, they take it into their biomass, and then this transfers through the food web. Something else that the DOM does is it binds with metals. It attenuates light in the water. And another way to describe the DOM is when you're making tea, when you're drinking tea. So what tea is in essence, it's leaves, it's plants. And you put some water into that, and the material that leaches out you know, that brown color, that's your tea that you're gonna drink, this is DOM. So this is dissolved organic matter. And so that's what I study primarily. And another way to think about DOM is, uh, for those of us who are lucky enough to have a cottage and be able to go there the summer, in the boreal forest at least, because a lot of the DOM leaches from coniferous trees, this is what makes our lakes really brown in color. And this DOM is increasing in the environment. In certain places of the world, like in the boreal forest, we are seeing a lot more DOM going into our lakes and into our rivers. And in short, they are becoming browner, uh, a phenomenon called uh, brownification. Now let's build off the idea of microbes, which you mentioned earlier on, and let's talk about metagenomics, which I know you do some research on. I've heard of the fields of proteomics, I've heard of human epigenetics, but metagenomics is a completely new term for me, and I'd assume it's a pretty new term for a lot of people. So could you possibly explain what exactly metagenomics is and how it relates to your work? I mean, before I describe metagenomics, we should back up a little bit to uh, at least the way that I use it. I'm not an expert. I'm not a geneticist by training, but I have very recently used metagenomics to try to explore a little bit more what microbes are doing into the environment and how they process this dissolved organic matter. Because historically, so metagenomics is fairly new. The term metagenomics was actually invented in the late 1990s. So it's a fairly new, new field. And um, in essence, before that, what we would do is we would just say, oh, look, these microbes are important uh, or the bacteria are important. And we would take very crude measurements of, uh, of microbiology in the water uh, 
we would use molecular probes to stain them and we would count them either by microscopy or by something called flow cytometry. But this doesn't give us a lot of information. This doesn't allow us to explore more in depth what the, what the microbes are doing. Um, and it certainly doesn't give us any information on their diversity. And so metagenomics is a really useful tool to try to understand what microbes are doing to the environment and what it is, in essence, it's the retrieval of genetic information from microorganisms without first pre-selecting by, by techniques, uh, by PCR, which gets only to a targeted gene, or, or, or without isolating and culturing, culturing the organisms in the lab. Because we cannot culture 99% of the microbes that are found in the environment. So if we're not able to culture them and plate them, then we're not able to study them. So, the, so metagenomics allows you to go around that. And so before metagenomics, what microbial ecologists would do, um, they started, um, they would count the, the microbes. Sometimes they were able to use molecular probes, which would tell them, oh, look, this microbe is, uh, is dormant, is dead, is reproducing. But, but that's, in essence, all the information that you can get from it. But by collecting this genetic information and using approaches such as the ribosomal RNA, um, we can get just a little more information to try and understand what microbes are doing, what organisms are doing, what their role uh, in ecological and other processes are, and, and then link that to the environment. And so metagenomics is, is not the only omics that can do that. Now, I have only used metagenomics. But metagenomics data tell us, in addition to what type of bacteria are there and what type of microbes are there, uh, tell us about their potential roles. Okay, so what kind of functions are, are active at the time that you sampled? Um, what kind of diversity is associated with something like nutrient cycling or carbon cycling or metabolism of sugar? Okay, but Omics, other omics, which are also popular now, other approaches of omics like meta-transcriptomics, meta-proteomics, uh, get closer to their ongoing activities. Now, I haven't done that. I've done the metagenomics part, which is to link uh, the microbes to their function and then take that information and try to understand a little bit how that varies in the environment. So if you have a stream that has more agriculture in its catchment, it will be more polluted, it'll have more nutrients in it, and the microbes that are found in that stream will be different than the microbes that are in a stream that's more forested. And, um, and those microbes will perform slightly, well, they, for the end, they're, they're both going to be performing the same functions like respiration, but maybe the ones in the agricultural stream will have more genes and more functions associated with nutrients, nutrient decomposition and nutrient recycling, just because there's more nutrients in those streams compared to the streams that are more forested. So when you finish a study after, you know, going through the process of collecting samples and analyzing, what then do you hope is done with the conclusions of your research? Like, are you hoping to see 
actual change in terms of the way, let's say, companies or, or government are, are practicing their policy? Or is it more for a scientific reason of, of just learning more about these types of areas and these types of microbes? Um, well, it's a little bit of both. So I, I think when I do research, I always try to bring it back to the movement and processing of organic matter and its role in the global carbon cycle. And so when I go into the metagenomics of the microbes and of the bacteria, I try to understand a little bit more what they're doing in the water and how they're processing the organic matter and how this stimulates the microbial metabolism and how they're in turn transforming the carbon because they may be incorporating it into their biomass. But another thing that microbes do is they respire this carbon. And then this can, um, this can in turn uh, return the carbon as carbon dioxide or as methane if there's no oxygen in the environment. So return that back into the atmosphere. And so they do play an important role in transforming or bringing the carbon back into carbon dioxide, which then the trees take again. This is part of the cycle and the rivers and the lakes are hot spots for that type of processing. But there's a little bit of curiosity too. So when we, when we took metagenomic samples uh, downstream of the Detroit River, because we were trying to western basin of Lake Erie, for example, we saw um, because we were downstream of Detroit, West Wastewater Treatment Plant, we were able to, to detect in the water genes um, that showed antimicrobial resistance, for example, or, or using pharmaceuticals and prescription drugs. We were actually able to detect that in the water. So this is another reason to actually to actually study it, uh, but ultimately back um, to what I'm interested in, tying um, the microbes and their functions to the uh, global carbon cycle. I find that incredibly interesting that that you're able to detect all those other samples within the 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 content that you're studying um, outside of just the microbes themselves, and that's that's really cool. I'd love to now. Uh, uh, transition to this segment we have where we all know COVID-19 is, you know, impacting our life in many different ways, but one way in which people may not realize the impact of COVID-19 is on the environment. So we've each pulled some research um, that, that professors have done. So I want to talk about this study from the University of Chengdu in India, where researchers have observed that, and, and they are specifically linking this as a, as a direct result of COVID-19, that there is improved water quality in the Vembanad Lake as a result of less pollution and less traffic in terms of people aren't, aren't uh, like commuting along the road nearby. So I'm wondering, have you, I guess this is a two-part response. One is, have you observed any impacts uh, on your studies because of COVID-19 and, and if so, why do you think that is? Like, can you explain to us why COVID-19 is impacting, you know, freshwater ecosystems? Well, I missed the earlier part of your segment because of internet issues. I think you're asking me with whether we can detect COVID in the wa wastewater or no? Um, 
I was not asking, but if you have an answer, then that that's totally Actually, fine too. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know, but I I do have colleagues who are studying um, uh, because of course we we excrete in the wastewater. If we get good at it, this may give us um, a tool to be able to detect uh, an increase in the disease because it's all of a sudden increasing also in the wastewater because many 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 well not many but some who, who have COVID are asymptomatic but by shedding the virus into the wastewater we may be able to say oh look there's a lot of it at uh, this time so that it may give us an indication that there's there's an increase in, in, in the disease um, but just to go back I think then your question was is there an improvement in water quality because we are now all home um, and not really polluting um, that's what they say. They say this is a good year for the reduction of um, CO2 to the atmosphere. I mean, we're certainly driving less to work. Um, whether this uh, is also going to improve our, our, our water quality, I, it's too soon to say. Um, we did manage to go out and take some, uh, some water samples this summer. So we, I do, we do have a monitoring program. Um, this is a long-term time series this year. And so once we process those, those nutrients, we'll, we'll have the answer to this question. But for now, it's just too soon to say. Um, certainly for, we're still growing food, we still need food to eat. And so that type of pollution is still going to be there um, because we're still gonna apply the fertilizers and they're still gonna leach into the water. Um, but uh, I, I'm not sure just, just how to answer your questions yet. Yeah, that was a pretty good response to Jonah's news segment. And the news story that I found is actually pretty similar. So recently, there was a study that was conducted by the International Renewable Energy Agency that stated how the economic impacts of COVID-19 have caused emissions to decrease around the world. The study also found that even after COVID-19 restrictions are fully lifted, many people are going to feel that industries such as air travel and public transport just won't be the same for a very long time. So do you think that these long-term effects of lifting the COVID-19 restrictions will allow us to live in a cleaner and greener world? I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, we have a long ways to go to make the world uh, better. So um, it's just too soon to say uh, what, the, what the impacts are going to be of, you know, a, a reduction in the, in the economy and in our activities. Certainly in the long-term records, you know, when there was the big depression and when there was the world, the world wars and, and people were moving less and, and working less, there was a dip in the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. These things are documented and are known to occur. Um, and so depending how long we reduce our economic activities, which cause the greenhouse gases to increase, um, we may or may not see uh, this dip as well. I know you told us beforehand that you're very interested in the science behind food and cooking. And I was wondering, maybe for people who aren't familiar with, with genomics and, and your research, what are 
some of the biggest parallels that people don't realize between your work and that of, let's say, making dinner? I don't know that there's any parallel. Well, there's probably <laughs> that are not obvious to me. I, I, use, I, I use cooking as a stress release. Um, and after a long day of thinking about science, uh, I love science. I just like to come and think about the science of cooking. So I, I sit there and, and prepare my eggs and think about how they're two <laughs> things. They need two different temperatures to cook or, you know, what's browning and what's making it caramelized and the, the, the mylar re reaction that makes our food tasty and all that stuff. But certainly in terms of, of the metagenomics, it's also used to understand uh, gut flora. Now, I'm not an expert in that, so I will not give you a very intelligent answer. <laughs> But uh, it is an important tool for us to understand our, 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 our gut microbiome, um, which we're beginning to discover is really important and can help us, can protect us against certain diseases. And, um, and that we don't all have, you know, some of us have different floras than others. Um, and so this may be why some of us are more prone to disease or prone to obesity, obesity, you know, getting big and stuff like that. So uh, whether there's direct parallels, I'm sure there are, <laughs> maybe with, <laughs> with gas production in the gut, but, <laughs> and the gas production in the stream. Uh, but just like we have to protect um, the microbiome of water. So bacteria play a really important role in water. And I think it's very and a very underappreciated role. Like we tend to think about bacteria, you know. I mean, you were asking me questions about COVID. It's a virus. We tend to think about um, it's the coronavirus, and it's bad, and it causes disease. That's probably how we think about bacteria too. But the majority of the bacteria and the microbes play a super important role in the environment, and certainly in our gut as well. Um, when when they grow out of control, that's really when we get sick. <laughs> We can probably draw the same parallel with the water is when, they, when certain types grow out of control, then the water's not functioning as well. Um, when you have too much of a good thing, you have too many nutrients, and all of a sudden there's, an, uh, there's a cyanobacteria bloom. These are, can be toxic. This is going to affect our drinking water. So this is the disease of the... <laughs> so we can think about it the same way with our, with our gut. Um, as well, and the bacteria that we have that, that can go bad and, and, and all of that. So I don't know if that kind of answers your question a little bit. But oh yeah, for sure. No, that's, that's a great parallel. To, <laughs> one way to think about it. So yeah, we need to study our gut certainly a little bacteria a little bit more, just like the stream and the lake bacteria as well. We need to understand it a little bit better. Yeah, like a lot of people just eat foods that they really like and they tend to forget that they literally have a whole world living in their stomach of bacteria and they have to nourish that bacteria as well. So yeah, that's definitely something people should, uh, people should consider. But I guess I can move on to my question now. So my question is, if you were prime minister for one day, what changes would you make to our current agricultural practices and urban development techniques so our environment does not get harmed as much? I would, uh, I would bring back um, some pretty good policies that allow for both to exist. We need food, 
um, but we can grow it sustainably. Um, and we need a house to live in, so we need cities. We don't need urban sprawl. So we can, so these are the types of policies I would make. So sustainable, you know, food production that focuses on not using so much, so, so many pesticides and so many fertilizers, not having monocultures of things, but having a mixture and rotations and smart growth. So smart growth is, you know, growing up rather than growing out um, so that we are able to maintain some of our wetlands and forests and, um, and open lands. So that's what I would do. Is this going to happen? Am I going to be prime minister soon? Yeah, no. th this is your first campaign speech. We're actually <laughs> planning on releasing this to, to the mass public afterwards. <laughs> I'm afraid I just lost all of the farmers and developers. They're not going to be, they're not going to vote for me. <laughs> all right. Well, well we can, doctors. We can develop up, just not out. Exactly, exactly. So, Dr. Xenopoulos, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we learned a ton about your research and process of metagenomics as well you have earned two votes for your eventual campaign for prime minister of canada so <laughs> thank you very much for joining us on behalf of our listeners my name is jonah Lanwan. and my name is aryan singh and we'd like to thank you for listening to our podcast we hope you can all join us on our next episode thanks <laughs>